Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Ash Patel. Ash is a full-time commercial real estate investor for the last 10 years. Previously, he spent 15 years in corporate America. He now invests in retail, warehouses, offices, industrial, mixed-use, medical, restaurants, and ground-up development. Ash is a hands-on property manager and also teaches others how to invest into non-residential commercial property through his mastermind at Invest Beyond Multifamily. So thanks so much for being on the show today, Ash. Hey, Charles. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you're usually on the other side of the mic, so it's I great am. to get you. <laughs> how many episodes have you done on the Best Ever Commercial a, Real Estate a, Show? A few hundred, if I had to guess. A few hundred? Oh, yeah, wow. Okay. I have no idea. <laughs> um, so Ash, please tell us about your background, both uh, personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in real estate investing. Yeah, so born and raised in Jersey, went to school at Indiana University in Southern Indiana, got a job in Cincinnati after college. I thought I'd be here for a year or two. I always live light, hoping to pack up my car and move out to one of the coasts. Uh, I've been here for about 25 years now, so that didn't happen. Uh, married two kids, had a 15 year IT career and kind of found real estate by accident, fell in love with it. And I've been doing that for over 10 years. What was the reason that you chose real estate as your investment vehicle? I was looking for a tax write-off Okay, and didn't realize that that was going to be me finding my calling. And again, truly fell in love with commercial real estate. So let's talk about this for a second, because I get, you know, obviously we talk a lot about here about uh, multifamily real estate investing and, um, but getting, I, I like to get people on that invest in non-residential commercial real estate. And can you explain why you chose that um, kind of path and that asset class, those asset classes versus going into what I think has got a lot of buzz around it for the last uh, several years, which is multifamily? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. Uh, I didn't set out to be a commercial real estate investor. Happened by accident. My first building was a mixed-use building. So I had a commercial tenant on the first floor and residential tenants on the second and third floors. And they were college kids. This was in a college town. The commercial tenant was a grocery store slash beer store selling booze to college kids. Um, and I saw where the residential tenants were destroying my apartments, just you know, typical college kids and the commercial tenants were putting tens of thousands of dollars into my building, improving it, redoing their mechanicals. And it blew me away that there's two different types of tenants. And it still blows me away why everybody doesn't get out of residential and go into commercial. So it's it's funny because my first commercial property that I invested into was a mixed use property and it was all residential above it. And then it was office on the first floor, which I moved into making my own office. So I didn't really have a commercial tenant until I moved my office out of there. But yeah, I know exactly how it is. It's it's a mix. And was that tenant there? Did you did you inherit that tenant from the previous owner? I did inherit that tenant. Um, I was able to raise their rents and eventually mm -hmm. sold them the building. Nice. And the guy is one of my best friends today. Um, now, when you have a mixed use building, 
the highest and best buyer is going to be your commercial tenant. Because when I sold the building to them, they essentially got the building and had free rent, right? Because mm -hmm. the apartments were paying their mortgage and they were able to keep the building rent-free while they're paying down a mortgage and overpay significantly for the building. So please explain kind of what your company's investment strategy is and what your criteria for investment is currently. Yeah, we look for really high returns. And the reason for that is in mid, you know, like around 2015, 16, I started investing passively into multifamily. And those returns passively were over 20% annualized cash on cash upon sale. So I told myself, if I'm going to do any of my own deals, they have to exceed 20% cash on cash, but really they need to far exceed that because if I'm putting my time into the deal, I've got to get a return for it. So we've held true to that metric, the 20% cash on cash return. Um, there's times that will go as low as 14, 13% cash on cash, but there has to be a huge upside on the back end. So really that's the one metric that we try to stick to every time is just super high returns, but mostly it's a value add, right? If, if there's a deal that does, let's say 16, 17% cash on cash, we'll likely pass on it. If it's a fully leased up multiple renewals and you know, there's just not much upside, it's not a deal for us. We want those unicorn deals. Okay. Are you mainly finding your deals through commercial real estate brokers or are you maybe sourcing deals directly from owners How, or do you do both? Uh, rarely do we find deals from brokers because if they are a commercial real estate broker, they know about cap rates, they know about NOI, they know how to price commercial property, right? So uh, there's one example that I can think of off the top of my head where we bought a strip mall from a commercial realtor, a commercial broker, and it was a 96,000 square foot Dollar Tree anchored strip. It was mispriced, mismarketed. So this broker, who's a seasoned broker, second generation, didn't put it on LoopNet, didn't put it on Crexy, put it on his own website that nobody visits. It's a little mom and pop website. And he still has the same strip mall two years later on his website as for sale, right? So it was heavily mismarketed. And then the, the seller didn't keep accurate financial records. So it was also mispriced. And that's an example of how we can get a deal from a broker, but we look for mispriced, mismanaged or mismarketed deals. A lot of times residential realtors posting commercial deals is a great source. Uh, your network calling up for lease listings, right? Hey, I don't want to lease your building. I'd rather buy it. Are you interested? All right, so just getting creative, um, looking for off-market deals herself. Uh, but I, in commercial real estate, and when I say commercial, I mean non-residential commercial, I've seen the letter writing campaigns, the text, the postcards, and I've never seen that work on, on a scale, right? And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because um, we're just not used to being hit up by marketers um, we're less receptive to it. I, I honestly have no idea why, but I've not seen that work. So they're one-off deals that you've got to find.
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, when I bought that uh, mixed-use property, it was off uh, MLS from a residential broker. So it's definitely something that's out there. And it sat on the market for many months before I did. So it's definitely a... Um, yeah, it's definitely a great avenue going on those uh, residential or you know non-commercial kind of routes to finding properties. Um, you mentioned something earlier about value add with commercial real estate. Can you explain um, kind of what that business plan consists of? Because it might differ a little bit from, obviously, it's going to be the same overarching ending that we'd have with kind of multifamily. But what really is, what consists in that business plan of what you're uh, spending time on focusing from the time of when you're looking at property to the time of when you're executing that business plan. Yeah. So Charles, it, it's really similar in that we use NOI and cap rate to evaluate multi or uh, evaluate commercial property, but we're not bound by rent comps. And what I mean by that is if you have a class B building and you have a class A building next door, the class B can, you know, renovate the apartment put the LVP down, paint the kitchen cabinets, redo the bathrooms, the flooring, the lighting, um, fixtures, add a dog park, covered parking, put a gym in, raise rents. The problem is they can only raise rents up until they hit that class A floor, right? So they're bound by rent comps. In commercial real estate, we can take a vacant block building with a metal roof that you could pick up for $200,000. If you can sign a 10-year dollar general lease, to that building, you've made 1.2 to $1.4 million. And it doesn't matter what the comps are anywhere around you. You could be next to a mom and pop store that's worth $200,000, right? So we're not bound by comps. In our world, it's mostly income approach, right? So yeah. it really depends on the quality of the tenant, the length of the lease, uh, how much above or below market that lease is what upside is remaining. Now, you know, you might think a long-term lease is great. The problem with that is historically a long-term lease would have been great because it's nice to know that, you know, Starbucks, Dollar General, Chipotle, they're not going anywhere because they have 15 years left on their lease. The problem is if that lease was initiated in that low inflationary period that we've had for many years, they probably signed a lease where every five years, there's a five, six, 7% rent increase, right? So the commercial people lose in that sense because multifamily, there was markets where there was 12, 13, 14% annual increases in rents. We can't do that because we're bound by comps. Sorry, we're bound by the lease and bound by renewals. So where in the past, having longer term leases may have helped you, today we look for under market leases that are coming up for renewal soon and they don't have any renewals, right? They're expiring leases. So that's one of the things we look for in, in terms of value add, you know, we want, if we're buying a strip mall, the ideal strip would be uh, a national tenant as an anchor, um, other national tenants alongside, but then some mom and pops, some vacancies, so we can improve the value there, right? We'll take office buildings, that are uh, either vacant or uh, you know undervalued, underrented. Uh, we'll convert them to uh, co-working spaces. We'll take industrial, split them up into flex spaces. So there's a lot of different creative ways that you can add value. If we if you have a strip mall uh, with a giant parking lot, you can sell an out lot, build a Chipotle or Starbucks in your parking lot, right? And that's things that 
may go overlooked because not everyone is comfortable with developing. Interesting. So bringing in that national tenant or that major tenant really increases the value of the property. And that's obviously one of the best routes to going to improving your NOI and the value of the property. How do you go before buying a property? And is there any way of really testing, for lack of a better word, testing the appetite of any tenants of that stature coming in? Um, is there any way of knowing that or having an idea about the possibility of that actually happening on a potential property you're buying before actually putting it under contract and purchasing it? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll answer it in two ways. One, let's look at buying a property that has some or all vacancy. You can certainly test drive the property under due diligence, right? You can market it as if you already own it, uh, get the seller's permission to do so, but you can test market it and see what kind of demand there is, right? So if you have a warehouse, a flex space building, you know, market that and see if there's a bunch of people responding to your advertise, advertisements. Yeah. Um, for national tenants, they move much slower. So in a short period of due diligence, you're not going to be able to test the waters with national tenants. However, if you have contacts with brokers or franchisees of those national tenants, you can put some feelers out there and get an indication of how likely they are to bite. Now, you know, the million dollar question, how do you secure a Starbucks? How do you secure Chipotle? Um, th there's no easy answer. There's a lady named Beth Azor who's uh, been in this business for 30 years. She's known as the canvassing queen. Even with all the relationships she has, she still has to knock on doors, canvas, try to steal tenants. Um, there's no secret to it, right? Um, contacts certainly help. Experience certainly helps. But these national tenants move at their own pace, right? Even though you, you could have yeah. the absolute perfect location for that Starbucks, they'll just say, yeah, we're not expanding in that area currently. Interesting. Right? And, yeah. and if they are interested, it's a very lengthy process where you submit all the demographic traffic counts, site plans, um, and it's a tedious process. Yeah, we put a lot of weight on it as the multifamily side as um, when doing due diligence, when we see those tenants that are in the near, nearby area, because we know, you know, the amount of due diligence that a Starbucks does versus some mom and pop uh, cafe, let's say, that uh, what they did to um, make the decision to move into that neighborhood. And that gives us promise uh, when buying in there too. So I definitely, definitely can see how much work it takes. Yeah. And for your listeners, you know, you can have a mom and pop coffee shop or a Starbucks, same building, same location, um, but there'll be a difference between a five cap and probably a nine cap, mm -hmm. right? So the value will be twice as different almost. Yeah, interesting. Uh, that's crazy, but it just goes to show how strong that tenant is and how good that lease is going to be and the ability, I guess, for them to uh, renew at the end of it. Correct. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about some of the differences here. So you have a property under contract, um, you're going through it. There's a lot more, as you've indicated, there's a lot more time you're spending on reviewing leases um, during the due diligence because it's very important and a lot of value you can build from finding these undervalued leases. Um, so when you're doing due diligence, other than the, the normal physical due diligence that somebody would do in every building, what else are you doing when you're reviewing a property um, during that process before you actually purchase it um, to make sure that uh, it, it's going to have some upside for you? Uh, another good question. So 
the leases, uh, we'll, we'll hit on that just for a bit. Yep. Every lease is so different, right? Uh, even a triple net lease, there could be clauses in there where the tenant is responsible for repairs and maintenance on HVAC, but the landlord is responsible for replacement or they could be capped. The tenant will only pay up to $500 per year on repairs and maintenance. So literally every single commercial lease will be very, very different. So you've got to read every paragraph. And some of these leases are 60, 80 pages long. You have to read every word of it because one paragraph can make a huge difference. For example, we had an anchor tenant in a strip mall. They had a sightline provision that was three sentences in a 60 page lease where it said uh, the sight lines from their suite has to be clear all the way to the street. And what that means is you draw two imaginary lines from end to end of their store, go all the way out to the main road. Nothing can be in that parking lot. So if you have a tractor supply that likes to put mulch out in the parking lot to sell, can't happen. If you want to take some of your parking lot, put that Starbucks in there, can't happen, right? Three sentences in a 60 page lease. So the details are so important in those leases. Due diligence, we go way, way above and beyond. We will call everybody at the city that will talk to us. We'll call economic development. We'll find out what they think of that property, what they think of what's going to happen in this town, what they would like to see happen, what jobs are coming in, uh, you know, what rumors are going around. We'll call the chief of police, find out what crime is like. And, you know, funny thing is one of these properties that I bought, the chief of police is like, hey, this town, we need a butcher. Call this guy. He wants to go in your strip mall. So this was in due diligence before I even bought it. And I got a tenant from calling a chief of police, right? Um, we'll get onto social media sites for that town, not the official page. So, you know, if you live in St. Louis, Missouri, um, there might be a St. Louis Facebook page, but then there's going to be a neighborhood page where whatever area you're in, it, it's a Facebook page where people go to gossip and complain. And they, they, they talk about the schools, the crime, the politics, and it's a lot of complaining. You go on that site where people speak freely and you say, Hey, look, I'm looking at buying this building. Please tell me your thoughts. And you, you say, look, I'm looking at buying this building. What would you like to see there? Why is it vacant? Why has it not been rented? Right. And it's amazing how much knowledge you can get from people on those sites. Uh, there's a whole list of other things, right? Um, obviously look at things like fire suppression, uh, code violations, uh, any zoning changes that might come through. Are you compliant with everything? Are they going to make you put sprinklers in if you do any renovations? Um, there's a ton, but little things, you know, like traffic count, population growth, household income are great. But I'm telling you, interact with people in that town on social media and you find out the vibe of the town. Can't do that any other way. Interesting. That's a lot of great information. Thank you. Um, so getting into the financing portion of this after doing your due diligence, when you know when I've financed these small commercial properties before, whether it's small apartment buildings or uh, small commercial properties, mixed use, you know, I've I've really used local lenders and I tell people the importance of local lenders, local credit unions, local banks when investing in small, you know, small commercial properties in local areas. I mean, what do, is that how how do you really finance these properties and um how have you built relationships with your lenders? 
you hit the nail on the head. It's the only way we finance those properties. Fannie and Freddie won't touch commercial deals. No. Um, big banks won't touch value add deals. I had two big Wall Street banks call me over the years and they're like, gosh, we want to refinance all of your properties. We, you know, we want to collateralize them. And I thought, awesome. I could probably get a better rate, pull a bunch of money out. They went through my entire portfolio, my financials. They nitpicked just the properties that have been stabilized for three years or more. And that means fully leased long-term tenants for three plus years, right? And they were going to leave everything else behind to this local lender who started with me and took a chance on me when no one else would. So I didn't choose to go with those big banks. Relationships are everything. Um, today, I know that if I bring a deal to my lender, it's two emails. One, me sending them the email with the, with the purchase contract. The next email is them telling me when they're clear to close. A lot of these deals don't make any sense on paper. Uh, if they're vacant or you know if they're upside down, no lender is going to touch them, but they don't care. They're banking on me, right? So that relationship, the local lender is everything. And today, things have changed a lot. Lending appetites are changing week by week. Uh, literally, we've had lenders that would finance anything we wanted to. And then all of a sudden, they'll tell us they're not doing office, they're not doing industrial. And by the way, um, our relationship has to season for another year before we do any more deals with you. And it's crazy because these, these banks, this one bank in particular, they were so gung-ho on building a relationship with us. But again, you know, a president, a board member may have handed down an edict on saying no more commercial loans. So today we heavily rely on lending brokers, which we never would have in the past because the brokers will pair you up with whatever bank they think is best. But these brokers know that week who has a lending appetite, who's new and hungry in this market, right? And we're in a lot of different markets, so um, we don't always know who's hungry at the time. Um, but, you know, again, in the past, never would have used them because we want to build the relationships. Uh, today, it's always using a lending broker along with our existing lenders just to make sure nobody gets cold feet at the end. Oh, that's great. Yeah, always having a backup when you're going through it, especially in the lending environment we're in now. Yeah. Huh. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. For, for new investors interested in uh, investing in commercial real estate, non-residential, I mean, what would you suggest to these to these investors wanting to uh, wanted to start out in this? Um, buy a mixed-use building, right? Uh, I'm really jealous of the multifamily community, the self-storage community, the mobile home park community, 
because you guys all have masterminds where you can level up. There's books, YouTube videos. I mean, there's so much knowledge out there for commercial real estate. There's almost nothing. All the masterminds that are out there. I looked at joining um, most of them were money grabs uh, and none of them were really comprehensive and they were very, very expensive. So buy a mixed, do what I did, just buy a mixed use building and you typically will cover all of your expenses by the apartments. So the commercial is just, you know, profit on top of that. And Charles, I'll give you a quick example of why these buildings fall through the cracks. I had a mixed use building that I had a restaurant in and next door, we were going to build an event center in the mixed use building that was adjacent to ours. Um, I, I, you know, I negotiated the price down to $165,000 building has been vacant for five years. And I just really wasn't into expanding this restaurant or building an event center. So I passed on it. And a month later, I get a call from a friend of mine who is a residential investor, multifamily investor. And he says, Ash, will you help me with this commercial property? Sure. What's the address? He tells me the address. And I said, oh, look, I own the building next door. I try to buy this. Uh, I know for a fact you can buy it for 165. And he's like, well, the commercial scares me. And I thought, whoa, hold on. The residential scares me because <laughs> I don't want to deal with I don't want to deal with residential tenants. So I said, why don't we partner up on it? And he's like, yeah, I just, he's like, I just, I don't want anything to do with commercial. And I said, okay, answer me this. If this building was the same footprint, same building, same exterior, but drop down one story, just take the commercial part out of it. I said, what would you value for apartments, for two bedroom apartments on that street at? And he said, probably 290, 300. And I'm like, oh my God, you can buy this building for 165 and you're getting free commercial and it scares you that much. You're walking away from it. He's like, yeah, I'm good. And this building was on the MLS, right? If this was advertised as a four unit apartment building with no picture, there'd be a bidding war on it. But because they gave you a free commercial space on the first floor, it scared everybody away. I ended up buying this building for $150,000, right? And it appraised at like 490. So mixed use buildings fall through the cracks. Commercial people like me don't want them. Residential people don't want them. Banks hate them, right? Lenders, they don't fall into residential. They don't really fall into commercial. So you've got to find the closest lender to that property to finance the building. Uh, that's that's a lot of great information there. Yeah, what I've, what I've found with local lenders that I've worked with is they've, um, one mainly that I've worked with is they've had like a square footage type percentage and they'd say like um it's like 85 percent had to be residential the rest could be commercial and they had it like in this like sweetheart program that they had and so if you it's it's amazing how different the programs can change between bank to bank i found even in the same town so it's you're right um yeah. and that's why i said find the closest bank to that property because a lot of community banks are incentivized to give lower loans in their own backyards Right. So if you find the right bank, you can pick these mixed use buildings up for five or 10% down. Yeah. It's also easier to negotiate with those local banks. There's usually only like a three person commercial uh, uh, credit committee. So when they're making these decisions and the people that are making decisions, usually if they're right there close to the property, they've probably driven by the property. They might drive by it on their way in and out of work. So it's, it's, you got a lot more leverage there than going after one of those national or regional large ones. 
So hundred percent correct. Um, so as we're finishing up here, just um, what are some of the common mistakes I guess you would see real estate investors make that are getting involved with uh, commercial real estate? Um, not thinking big enough. So for me, I lied to myself for many years saying that there was a sweet spot between 300,000 and 800,000 where that's where the highest returns were. And I did that because I didn't have the courage to take down bigger buildings, right? Higher price properties. Um, and then I finally snapped out of that. And I realized managing a $5 million building is literally much easier and less work than a $500,000 building. So, you know, my assistant will tell you the same thing. Our $500,000 building, we're there a lot. We get texts from those tenants a lot. The $5 million building, we, we're never there. I mean, we just don't even hear from those tenants, right? So go bigger, go faster. Um, that, that's a, a mistake that I made for many years. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. So how can our listeners learn more about you and Invest Beyond Multifamily? Um, Charles, my company is Invest Beyond Multifamily. Website, investbeyondmultifamily.com. Email me, um, ash at investbeyondmultifamily.com. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Facebook, Bigger Pockets. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Ash, and uh, looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.